This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity in New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the Global South. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I'm very excited to share this interview. Um, I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. How to Study Global Christianity, a short guide for students, written by Jason Bruner and published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022, is an introduction to world Christianity as a field of study. This book provides readers with an accessible yet critically oriented introduction to the foundational methods and themes in world Christianity scholarship over the past 40 years. While the field of world or global Christianity is itself interdisciplinary, it largely has not reflected upon the various disciplines of which it is comprised. In addressing different methods that have constituted this field of scholarship, Jason Bruner draws students' attention to the ways in which these elements have worked together and what the implications for their use have been in the past and might be in the future. In addition to identifying themes within the discourse, Jason's work offers a survey of where the field has been, what its analytical priorities are, and how future scholars might develop new research projects and trajectories in light of its history. Over the course of our conversation, we will take a closer look at this important work and how this book sets out to make a significant contribution to scholars and students of world Christianity. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned and we hope you enjoy the book and also our conversation today. We are privileged to talk with Jason Pruner, the author of How to Study Global Christianity, A Short Guide for Students. Jason Bruner is an associate professor of religious studies in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University in Tempe. He is an ethnographer and historian studying Christianity in Sub-Saharan Africa and the United States. Jason teaches courses on New Testament, Uh, Religion, Theory, and Practice, History of Genocide, Religious Studies, and Topics in Film, Media, and Religion. He is especially interested in the issues of conversion, lived religion, violence, and globalization. Jason has published uh, scholarly journal articles and book chapters that pertain to religion, conversion, and politics in East Africa, and comparative study of genocide along with several creative nonfiction pieces. His first and second monographs were Living Salvation in the East African Revival in Uganda, published by University of Rochester Press in 2017, and Imagining Persecution, 
Why American Christians Believe There Is a Global War Against Their Faith, published by Rutgers University Press in 2021. He has also recently co-edited a volume with David Kirkpatrick titled Global Visions of Violence, Agency, and Persecution in World Christianity, also published by Rutgers University Press in 2022. Jason has also been recently appointed as a new director of the Desert Humanities Initiative at Arizona State University's Institute of Humanities Research. So welcome back, Jason, uh, to New Books in World Christianity. And thank you so much for returning to our podcast to discuss your book. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, and as we begin, I would like to say congratulations, Jason, for publishing this very important and excellent book. I believe that this book is just hot off the press and our listeners will be able to have access to this book right away. And I also believe that this is your third um, single authored monograph. Am I correct? Yeah, that's uh, that's right. It's it was it came out just at the end of 2022 and uh, just in time for Christmas and the holiday gift giving season. Uh, but uh, uh, of course, it's it's uh, it's available uh, kind of uh, everywhere online books are sold now. Um but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that it's out, and and um, I'm glad to to be able to share it with uh, with you and and others. Well, thank you, and once again, my sincere congratulations on this uh, new book. Um, now, this is your second time coming on our New Books Network uh, World Christianity podcast, and in the previous one, we talked about your book, you know, titled "Imagining Persecution: Why American Christians Believe There Is a Global War Against Their Faith." I know that during the previous podcast, you had the opportunity to share a little bit about your background, but you know, for our listeners that might be just tuning in and new to your work, do you mind briefly introducing yourself, um, you know, your academic background and how you became interested uh, in your field of study? Sure, yeah. I mean, in general, my interest in Christianity uh, globally or, or the history of Christian missions, uh, missions and colonialism, those kind of topics that have uh, kind of been a part of my research since graduate school. Um, you know, my entry point into those was really, you know, started at the end of high school for me. Um, and it came out of experiences that I had, you know, going, visiting countries uh, in that, at that time in Latin America. And, um, and that was my first real encounter with people whose, you know, you know, Christian faith or, or Christian communities looked in some ways similar, but in, in many ways looked quite different um, than, than what I was accustomed to in, uh, you know, kind of suburban Georgia. And, and, and that was just, just kind of that basic issue. Like, why does it feel like we share something and why does theirs look so different? Um, I mean, that, that, that is kind of where that, that kind of scratched, you know, the 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 curiosity of that um, kind of got got under my got under my skin in a good way, mm. um, and so <clears throat> to some degree, that's what I started following, even even as an undergraduate, and um, and it was that kind of curiosity about, well, that you know, thinking historically about those processes. And, mm -hmm. and at that time, I was still looking at Latin America. Um, and it, was, it wasn't until graduate school that I, I 
took my first classes in the you know history of Christian missions, mm-hmm. uh, colonialism. Um, I remember um, the you know my first semester, I ended up taking a, a seminar with uh, Professor Dana Robert. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of, I mean, that, that opened me up to a whole world, not just of, of, of Christianity, but the, the scholarship around it uh, that had been sort of, um, that, that was all basically new to me at that point. Mm. And, um, and so that's kind of, that's kind of where I feel like I got, I, you know, I, I was off and running after that. Um, and but I wasn't necessarily running to a specific thing quite quite yet. And it, and and then when I I got into the PhD program in at Princeton Theological Seminary, it was working there with uh, Richard Fox Young and and some other faculty mm. that I I started to really kind of feel like okay, looking at Christianity in East Africa is is that's the project that that I feel I can do well. And I felt like it, at least at that time, um, there hadn't been a, a lot of scholarship done on this massive colonial era revival movement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was kind of in thinking about what would it take to do a new kind of history of that movement. And, and that's going back uh, for those who might be aware of it, that's that's well before Derek Peterson's monumental book came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the it was it was it felt quite quite wide open in terms of the scholarship. Mm-hmm. And and so kind of working through my doctoral studies and trying to kind of get a sense of what does it mean to do a, a dissertation or book linked project in in world Christianity, you know, it that's when I was kind of coming up against the kinds of things that I, that I began to, that I addressed in a different way in this book, you know, how to study global Christianity, because at that point I had, like I had the teachers who, who more or less helped shape the field from, from the nineties on. And, um, but even still it was kind of, you know, it was intuited. It was kind of modeled in a classroom, but it wasn't necessarily, uh, presented in in a kind of book form or as a as a something that felt coherent and reflected upon in the way that a, a book would need to to mm-hmm. kind of be presented and and so it was kind of now that I'm I'm you know well on the other side of that graduate school experience um you know those things were were kind of the seeds of like, okay, how can I make the learning curve maybe a little less steep mm-hmm. for people who are coming after me? Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's kind of, you know, maybe my biography leading into this particular book. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think one of the great benefits of podcast interviews is to listen to what goes on, you know, behind the scenes to get that insider scoop to understanding the author's, you know, thoughts and intent and the journey that, you know, one takes in writing uh, the book. So Jason, I was wondering if you mind sharing with us how you came to write this uh, very book, How to Study Global Christianity. How did this, you know, idea develop and, you know, what led you to writing this book and who have, who did you have as your, you know, intended readers as you were writing? 
Yeah, I mean, so after after my time at, at Princeton Theological Seminary, I, I was really, uh, I don't know what, what other word, uh, lucky enough to get to get a job. Um, and uh, and so being at a, a place like Arizona State, right, which is about as polar opposite of an institution from from Princeton Seminary as uh, as you can get in terms of like just size and and ethos and um, uh, just yeah all, all the rest. Um, so it it was interesting for me to kind of go from one type of institution you know mm-hmm. like very old very storied very like uh full of tradition mm-hmm. um you know uh, a really kind of intensely insular uh mm. rich intellectual community um to kind of like being exposed to all, just all kinds of colleagues and ideas mm-hmm. and other mm-hmm. methods and uh, and, and that's really just kind of like in religious studies and history, which I already had, I thought, a pretty good grounding in. And then uh, kind of coming here opens me up to to all kinds of other, uh, you know, disciplinary debates and perspectives and some some other methods and their problems. And so the, the first years of, of kind of me figuring out who am I as a teacher, who am I as a researcher now that like, I'm kind of, you know, have this sort of formation that's, um, you know, I don't have like a necessarily a master's of divinity, but it was definitely done in the context of, mm-hmm. of a theological institution. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm in a quite different institution. You know, it, it was just kind of natural to kind of be rethinking, okay, what are, what are the assumptions about what I do and why, mm-hmm. and how does this, kind of inform, you know, at, at that point, it was how do I rewrite the dissertation to turn it into a book? Yeah. And, and that, that piece of it was, uh, was quite, quite challenging. That's the book on the East African revival that you mentioned. But it was kind of been those years that I'm, I'm kind of thinking through, um, okay, like, if I'm going to do scholarship in this field the field of world christianity or global christianity mm. um and i'm going to be here and i need to contribute to to kind of another set of disciplinary concerns you know kind of the broader religious studies academy as well like kind of what does that mm-hmm. interface look like between those those two uh literatures those two kind of scholarly conversations or communities or whatever word you might want to put there Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of had me asking other questions kind of yeah. all of the time, um, because I, I was in, you know, now in seminars or, or book groups with colleagues who had come out of, you know, a really thorough grounding in, in, you know, um, uh, anthropological literature or post-colonial theory or black studies or, mm-hmm. or just an entire entirely different discipline altogether and it was trying to kind of take some of that and rethink okay well why haven't we done this over here in our corner of of academia and world christianity Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so that was it was just a part of the conversation and it was mostly my head um Mm -hmm. i mean maybe you can kind of if you wanted to read back through some of those articles um me trying to figure out some of that uh, in the footnotes, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, 
and that just led to conversations with some some close friends of mine that I'm you know gone through grad school with and mm-hmm. and and kind of the book itself how to study global christianity is 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 really like a product of those two processes like me trying to figure out okay how how do i kind of translate these different mm. though related scholarly literatures to one another and then sort of me taking that conversation and using it to like have actual conversations with a handful of close friends yeah. over you know five or six years mm. um i mean that that was kind of that process and that was that was kind of how i tried to get the ideas of like well how would you articulate what our priorities are like they're just are or what's at stake in this kind of debate within world christianity from your perspective mm. um because it, again it felt like you know there's a there's a lot of really great scholarship on world christianity a lot of it is is often quite descriptive mm-hmm. um and there's not a ton of scholarship especially going back maybe five years that was kind of trying to take a secondary sort of form of analysis of of kind of thinking about what's the state of the field and so for me a lot of those kind of informal places around around conferences or or just in text messages and emails with friends Mm -hmm. that's where i was trying to go from like okay, this, these are interesting articles. Maybe they're doing something different to like, what does this say about what our field's priorities have been? Yeah. And, um, and then trying to kind of be as clear and precise as I can about that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that was kind of the, the, the process of, of coming to think, okay, this, this could become a book rather than just, um, you know, dozens of emails exchanged with a few people. Of course. And is it a, is it correct to assume that your intended readers, as the title of this itself, you know, uh, shows that you've had students in mind, right? Specifically, uh, I'm assuming both undergrad and also graduate level students in mind. Yeah, I mean, I I did try as as best I can to mm-hmm. to make it intelligible to you know a, a, a more or less average. Mm-hmm. undergraduate you know maybe someone who's had intro and in, you know something like introduction to christianity but yeah. like um would nevertheless be able to make sense of what's of what's being said in the book mm-hmm. um especially if they had a teacher i think for graduate students it might it, it would probably work fine being a more independent you know book um of course. but yeah i mean that's the idea is that i wanted you know, how do you encourage students, you know, it, it, either the undergraduate or graduate level to um, to find an entry point mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. this kind of scholarship? And, and that was really the issue because there are a couple of, of kind of overview books, and, and many of them are, are very good. You know, Dana Roberts' Christian Mission yeah. uh, is great. It's very accessible. You know, there are a couple of other kind of historical overviews of Christianity that have a global scope, mm-hmm. and and those are fine, but there's just a few of them, I, I think, really. And then the difference between like that and, say, a journal article in yes. uh, Studies in World Christianity or the jo- Journal of World Christianity or something like that is often can be fairly large. Mm-hmm. Um 
And so it was trying to kind of provide people some some ladders from from yeah. the one to the other um, that felt like they didn't exist of when I was, you know, kind of entering, trying to get my bearings on, on the field mm-hmm. uh, as the as an early graduate student. Yeah. And um, so that's my hope. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, since those kind of introductory histories, I feel like have already been written in a in a in a good and competent way Mm. um i didn't want to just kind of write another history of like here's christianity coming to africa here is it in asia and so on um but i wanted to kind of encourage people even as undergraduates to think okay like i can do forms of even research Mm -hmm. that are connected to the to this scholarship um, you really, I mean, in some cases without leaving your computer, um, although I hope people do leave their computers and yeah. maybe even venture out and meet some other d- different kinds of people, um, but to provide them some kind of basic tools for taking those next steps from like, mm. oh, there's, I had no idea there were this many Christians in East, uh, East Asia, uh, to like, how do I go about learning more about them on my own? Mm-hmm. Um that that those were the kinds of things that I just wanted to to provide people with some tools to make it more explicit to to just offer some clear invitations for how to kind of follow up on that. Excellent. Uh, I really like that expression ladders. You know, providing in a way a tool uh, for people to approach you know world Christianity in a more uh, way that you know seems more accessible. I think that's that's really great expression ladders and tools. Um, and thank you, uh, Jason, for sharing your, um, you know, experiences, the journey you took in helping us understand how this book, uh, you know, came into fruition. Um, for our listeners that have not yet gotten a hold of this book yet, I must say that even though the book is titled as a short guide, um, it is incredibly, <laughs> it is incredibly comprehensive and thorough. Um, with over 130 pages and 14 chapters, you know, they're also richly illustrated, you know, filled with important resources for, you know, further reading and even discussion questions at the end of each chapter to allow readers to continue to think and discuss about some important issues regarding the topics, you know, that is presented inside the book. And this book is largely, in a way, divided into two big main parts you know part one covers some of the method- methodology in studying world christianity you know, such as you know history ethnography theology and uh demography you know it's these kind of um themes and uh, uh methodologies part two you know covers important themes that has been crucial um, in the academic field of world Christianity, you know, such as agency, you know, mission, conversion, gender and sexuality, you know, translation, migration, you know, decolonization, and even neglected topics, you know, within the study of you know world Christianity and and considering and thinking about imagining the futures of Christianities as well. But before we, you know, deep dive into these two main parts, um, I wanted to ask you a question, Jason, that I asked several of my previous guests before, um, scholars within world Christianity, in which I think it is, you know, this question will be quite relevant to our conversation today. And that is, you know, in your academic research and in your own scholarship, 
how have you understood, you know, global or world Christianity? And what does it mean to study, you know, world Christianity? Now, I'm asking this as I think your perspective will also be very beneficial for not only our audience that might be new to the term global Christianity or world Christianity, but also for our students and young emerging scholars of world Christianity itself. So do you mind expounding on your understanding of this concept and, you know, what it entails? Yeah, sure. It's a great question. Uh, I guess maybe first to the uh, to the subtitle, the, the short guide. Um, yeah, maybe maybe that was more aspirational than descriptive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I certainly, I certainly meant to. Um, I fully intended to write about a twenty thousand word uh, book, like a really really concise uh, thing, and uh, and it grew to to be well, <laughs> much more than twenty thousand words. Um, yeah. So, uh, but to the to the question about uh, kind of. How, how do I think about what world Christianity is, or um, or, or maybe some distinction between world and global Christianity, uh, th those kinds of issues? Um, I mean, to me, world Christianity is um, it's a response. Um, in one part, it's a response to Eurocentric church history of like the 19th and early 20th centuries mm -hmm. you know where the story was one of kind of manifest destiny in, in a real way where you you're, it's just westward expansion and that's mm -hmm. you know it, it starts in jerusalem basically and it ends in uh new york city or san francisco and mm -hmm. uh good for us um if you're if you're a certain kind of american um in world Christianity, to me, I think one of its its really basic, essential, valuable things is that it just it is is that it insisted, absolutely rightly so, mm -hmm. that yes, it goes west, but it also goes south and southwest and southeast and east and northeast and north and you know all, all of these other directions really from uh, you know the very beginning um, and and it's that kind of work of of showing that the map of christian history is much more diverse uh much more varied much more colorful than the one that you know a, a lot of us inherited either kind of just through intuition growing up in a church especially if that church was in the united states mm -hmm. or western europe or or we're actively told because, you know, you know, if you just go back a couple of decades that, you mm -hmm. know, so many textbooks, um, that was the story that they told um, about what Christianity was. Um, so for me, it's it's a way of of insisting upon the importance of these other histories that had um, either been marginalized intentionally or, or unintentionally mm -hmm. um, uh, about what who Christians were mm -hmm. and how Christianity spread. Mm -hmm. And um, I still think that's, there's this kind of, um, uh, I think among many scholars, there is still this kind of passionate dimension to telling these, these often kind of local, national, regional histories yeah. that are often, unknown unless you're just intimately familiar with those regions otherwise. Mm. 
Um, and I, so those things I think are, are important to thinking about the field's mm-hmm. kind of larger ethos. I, I think as a kind of way of kind of a field of study, mm-hmm. um, like I, I, I try to show in that first section of the book, it's, it's always been a kind of plural method. Yeah. Even if that hasn't really been explicit mm-hmm. or, you know, people haven't necessarily reflected a lot on why mm-hmm. you're kind of doing, you know, sociological statistics with theology, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's or or with theology and archival work or why, are, you know, like like just so many scholars have just kind of naturally come to blend those things. Um, And and I think a lot of that, especially in the kind of mid to to mid 20th century to the early kind of period of decolonization, 1950s, 60s, 70s, you know, a lot of that was just because one, there weren't really archives per se uh, in, in some of these places, or they were hard to get to because of conflicts over colonialism and national rule. And so if you were trying to study those things, you had to kind of piece together whatever you could find because it wasn't easy to find. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a real benefit of the field. Um, mm-hmm. And that in, in a real way, you know, People like David Barrett, for example, um, who who kind of pioneers Christian sociological analysis uh, arising out of his experience in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like he's doing that. Like he's he's working to some degree ethnographically. He's yeah. he's got this kind of statistical modeling that he's trying to develop. He obviously has kind of theological ideas that are you know that are that are a part of that conversation for him too and he's he's trying you can you can see that he's trying to kind of do something new and i think a lot a lot of other people did that in different sort of places i mean just at the asc uh, the american society of uh, church history conference mm-hmm. you know we celebrated uh, 25 years of dana roberts american women in mission yeah uh uh, book, which is just a monumental accomplishment and in uh, a book that that really does hold up still. Mm. And and she was reflecting on like how much work it was just to find yeah. to find the materials for those to tell that history that had not been told. Mm-hmm. And I think those kinds of scholars that are doing that did that, you know, through the 70s, 80s, and 90s especially. Right, they kind of had to develop this bricolage of methods, um, it, just because some institutions didn't even want to, didn't think those materials were important. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, in attics or they were in, you know, the, um, you know, people's uh, family uh, collections and all of these other kinds of things. So, I think that kind of methodological pluralism is really an essential part of why the field has come to look the way it does. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I would say world Christianity versus global Christianity. I know like maybe going back about 20 years ago, right before I started in grad school, Mm -hmm. 
in kind of that period, you know, early 2000s, just after 9-11, mm-hmm. you know, there, there were a lot of, con- you know, kind of conversations about globalization, yeah. the globalization of religion, you know, kind of religions back on the foreign policy map, religion mm-hmm. matters, like these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and and there was a there was a style of scholarship around kind of globalization and religion that was looking at some of the same things that scholars of world Christianity had been looking at. You know, the fact that like, oh, yeah, like there are lots of Christians in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, what do you know? Yeah. Or like, you know, there's tons of Christians in uh, the Pacific Islands. Mm-hmm. And and what's their effect on on this or Korea or, you know, some of these other countries? And, and it was, but it was kind of the, that style of scholarship was often about kind of institutions and ideas and economic power, Mm. um, transnational connections, you know, that kind of thing where it felt a little bit removed from the ground level, whereas Mm. that kind of the ground level, I think is where a lot of world Christianity scholarship was thriving, Mm. uh, doing these studies, you know, like Lamansani's West African Christianity, um, you know, that's like this kind of really uh, attentive, geographically confined, um, you know, sort of uh, relentlessly perspicacious mm-hmm. uh, uh, historical study. Um, those studies were kind of taking these like more sweeping approaches. Maybe they were giving a bit more of attention to Western power as opposed to like local African, Asian, Latin American agency. Mm-hmm. And so that those kinds that it felt like a different flavor of scholarship, I think to people working in the field, mm-hmm. um, because it was like, well, wait a minute, like our scholarship, if you're a world Christianity scholar, kind of like, uh, Andrew Walls or Laman Sane, you know, it's like, well, we're, we're highlighting these local stories and the local character of these churches and faiths. And, um, you know, and here here come people that are doing something, you know, at, kind of with the these ideas of globalization in mind, saying like, no, this is about Western power and economics and mm-hmm. and influence and taking away local agency, uh, you know, through UN development goals on the one hand or like U.S. mega churches on the other. Yeah. And it felt like they were doing different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the book. You know, I, I kind of, I don't try to split those hairs too much. I mean, they're mm-hmm. there in the in the literature. In the literature, yeah. to me, um, the reason I don't split the hairs, one is I thought that was kind of getting too much in the weeds, kind of too quickly, yeah. and 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 then it kind of leaves out scholarship that has to do with world, you know, Christianity worldwide, yeah. in a way that like I, I didn't want people to reading the book to feel like that was siloed or something like categorically other. (laughs) And so that's one issue. I think another issue is I I think those distinctions, you know, that were kind of clear, you know, like the work of uh, Paul Gifford comes to mind, maybe to some extent, like David Stoll is Latin America turning Protestant, like that kind of literature that felt quite different from like, say, Lamansane or Agbukalu or some of these other scholars. Mm. I, I think that distinction is is a little bit less apparent now. Yeah. And I, I think to some degree the the kind of the subfield of 
the anthropology of Christianity is a bit responsible for kind of being in the middle between those two mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. scholarship, at least in terms of its sensibilities. Yeah. Because it shows that like, okay, yes, you have like these local expressions of Christian faith, but like it's absolutely part of their context that like funding does come from the United States. Like you yeah. can't just say that doesn't exist. Like it yes. absolutely is a part of their context that like they are reading you know, in Nairobi, uh, the purpose-driven life, which was written by the, you know, the pastor at Saddleback Church in in Southern California, like, yeah. you know, like those things are a part of that context, and mm -hmm. so you can't just bracket that, those kinds of pieces out because they they trouble mm -hmm. uh, sort of this kind of perception of a pristine local, um, almost like hermetically sealed. Uh, christianity that's that's over here but but we live in a world in which people are sharing these things all of the time they're they're on youtube they're they're twitter stars you know and mega church pastors you know celebrities in south asia and latin america and so on like so many of those churches are circulating globally yeah. and that global that sense of the global the international those connections are inherently a part of how those churches then understand themselves. Yeah. Um, the ideas that they're interacting with, the style of music that they that they play, um, who they're in conversation with, mm. um, and so yeah, like you've got, you know, I mean, I can go on with other kinds of examples, but mm. like that's that's kind of the basic reason why. I didn't want to split hairs between those two, uh -huh. and um, I wanted to 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 kind of try and include both of them because I, I think they're both essential for for thinking about what does Christianity look like, kind of more or less right now, mm -hmm. and how should we think about this as scholars? Of course. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for enlightening us with your understanding of what, you know, global Christianity or world Christianity is. I think this is very helpful. And as we enter into detailed discussions about um, some of the topics that you you bring up uh, throughout your book. Um, for my next question, I would like to shift our attention to the first part of your book in which you know, you seek to address the very big question of what are some of the methodological approaches in studying, you know, world Christianity. I, you know, especially enjoyed uh, reading the first chapter in this section titled History, um, in which you explain how thinking historically can help us, you know, understand world Christianity and the sources um, that scholars have examined and utilized um, in their work. So, Jason, do you mind sharing with us, you know, what kind of sources scholars have used in, you know, writing histories of world Christianity? And what are some of the challenges that, you know, scholars have faced um, within, you know, using these sources? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe more than any of the other chapters, this one felt sort of um, clandestinely autobiographical. Yeah. You know, it was <laughs> just like... Um, you know, because it was just me thinking back, okay, like, I, I needed to write this dissertation on the East African revival. And I was like, how did I, you know, where did I start? Um, you know, if, um, and, and so it was kind of working through that, mm. um, that I, that I just tried to kind of write up um, 
how that often has worked for people that are doing uh, historical, historically oriented scholarship. Mm. Um, I mean, I think in general, a, the study of world Christianity as a field comes out of the history of Christian missions. I mean, that connection is is kind of obvious in in one sense that missionaries are a part of how Christianity expands, uh, especially from like say the the 18th uh, century to the present. Um, and that that happens through and within uh, a colonial framework overwhelmingly. And so that conditions sort of what sources we have and where those sources are. Mm. You know, it's, it's why um, I had to save up to go to the UK to do a dissertation on Uganda, right? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it was a protectorate of, of Britain. Uh-huh. Um and that's where the missionary archives are among, mm. you know, as well as the colonial records mm. and as well as the anthropologists who were there in the early 20th century, you know, their papers are obviously um, in, in the UK mm. as well. Um, so for, for scholars in, in the, you know, North America or central Western Europe, you know, often that scholarship is, is, is quite a lot easier to do because, you know, the missionary societies were, were located in those things. And that's mm-hmm. where the, the missionary reports and the petitions from quote unquote native Christians and, you know, complaints about, you know, the local governors and all of that got sent back to New York or Philadelphia or London or, yeah. you know, what have you. And and so a lot of those resources are are housed here. Mm. Um, I think you know, by contrast, they're they're not housed, you know, for the most part, um, in places where those missionaries were. I mean, you obviously have lots of exceptions to this, but like in terms of the weight and the bulk of where most of that material is is. Mm. It, it it often is not in in those countries yeah. uh, who who were for the most part colonized, and a lot of those countries, you know, th- there there are many reasons for this. In part, some of sometimes it's because they were destroyed uh, mm-hmm. in those in those places. Sometimes it's because Christians are a minority and they are maybe a, a highly marginalized minority and they don't they can't afford. Mm-hmm. libraries let alone staff let alone like air conditioning systems that can regulate the temperature to keep manuscripts um, from disintegrating like there are lots of these kinds of of economic and political factors at work mm-hmm. sometimes uh, governments change quite rapidly in the era of decolonization or since and that can make access to national archives very, very difficult, even for people that live there. Yeah. Um, maybe because those were destroyed or maybe because they're just under a lot of kind of political scrutiny for what what's accessible. Mm. Um, so so all of those things can be a part of like how you might need to develop a historical project. And, and it means, of course, that. If you're from, um, you know, uh, say, say, I don't know, Kenya or Uganda or some, I mean, those are just countries that I know a bit better than others. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really really expensive, you know, especially relatively speaking, you know, relative to like your annual income for a lot of people, you know, you, you just it's it's hard to to travel to London and then Birmingham yeah. and then maybe Edinburgh and then maybe New York City, maybe Philadelphia, like to do a history of your own country if yeah. if you were wanting to incorporate those kinds of sources, um, and in right. So then it, it creates these kinds of imbalances yeah. in terms of what kind of scholarship can be done and who can do it, mm-hmm. uh, who can afford to do it. Um, I think it also has an effect on, you know, what does what does respectable scholarship look like and in the field? And for many people, that's citing the you know materials that are at the Church Missionary Society archives in the UK or yeah. or uh, whatever other kind of collection that's in the West. And if you can't get there um, because of visa or, or economics, uh, financial issues, um, then it can be hard to do scholarship that yeah. looks and is accepted by kind of people broadly in the field. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, I, I think that those are those are some kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there there can be others, and, and obviously, like there are all kinds of efforts, yeah. formal and informal, to to kind of mitigate this. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, because I, I, you know, if if you travel to these kinds of places um, that might not have you know, a local library with an archive of stuff from that place. Um, It's, it's clear that people have been preserving these things uh, and and often with a sense of their, their importance Mm -hmm. to who they are, to their communities, maybe a a kind of larger sense of like um, important to what they believe God is doing in the world, like Mm -hmm. uh, as as in a kind of theological sense. Mm -hmm. And so they preserve them. And, and I think this is why, I mean, if you're, if you are a scholar who can go to these places, I mean, that's why you should go is because the archives are inherently going to be incomplete. If they're in London, they're, they're not going to be able to necessarily um, have the memories and mm-hmm. some of the objects uh, and, and some of the other kind of gray literature and oral histories and that kind of thing mm-hmm. that would that are only being preserved by people as they live them and pass them on to their to their friends and family. Yeah. Um, so I think these are some of the these are some of the challenges. They're obviously not unique to world Christianity, yeah. um, but um, they they definitely have impacted, you know how how scholars have have written histories of mm-hmm. Christianity in these regions that are generally outside of the, the quote-unquote West. Well, thank you, Jason, for highlighting that. And it is um, interesting because a lot of the importance of visiting those uh, places where we write the history of Christianity about, I think, connecting those letters that missionaries or the sources that missionaries have written, connecting to connecting that to the oral histories, um, uh, the histories that are shown through practice or rituals. I think that's very important, even within our own scholarship of world Christianity. So thank you for highlighting that. And 
Um, I think this is a great segue into our next uh, conversation, our next question, and, and that is another great gem I was able to locate in the first part of your book was about the importance of ethnography, you know, something that has become even more popular among scholars of world Christianity and something that I also use in my own work. So for li our listeners who might be new to this methodological approach, do you mind explaining more on what ethnography is and what ethnographic research you know entails um, and if I'm not mistaken I believe that your own dissertation research in Uganda also employed this methodology so you know if you yeah. like to if you like to yeah. share some of your own personal experiences of using this methodology um, please do feel free uh, to share that as well yeah. yeah I mean I I mean maybe for someone um, who, who doesn't hasn't for, for him, a word like ethnography is a, is a strange or, or maybe scary, <laughs> intimidating kind of concept. Um, you know, I, as I kind of understand it in the simplest terms, it's, it's hang, you know, hanging out with all of your senses on, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it, and uh, it's, 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 it's spending a lot of time, often in not necessarily super exciting circumstances mm -hmm. but but the circumstances that could become interesting at any second yeah. um because you never know what somebody might do or say that uh kind of um uh you know will will profoundly change or impact how you how you think of of who they are or you know what you're studying or whatever you know, so it's it's meant. You know, so so in that sense, it's it's. Uh, I mean, there are people that do digital forms of ethnography, yeah. which um, I'm going to kind of bracket um, mm. here. But you know, kind of in its traditional form, right? It's it's showing up, it's establishing relationships, it's um, spending time, it's uh, at least how I tend to practice it. You know, mm. it's it's asking attentive questions sometimes kind of stupidly obvious questions uh sometimes you know it's, it's being humble it's being very patient it's being um uh you know it, it for me it tends to go better if i shut up and let them do the talking and whatever they're going to do and uh, because I think generally speaking, they're, they're more interesting. They're the experts. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, and, and in that sense, right, you, it's being a part of, you know, and for however long, uh, maybe, maybe for some people, it's a few hours or a day, given the circumstance for others, it can be weeks or months or longer years. Mm -hmm. as some of these projects have gone on. So, Right. There's there's no kind of cookie cutter model for what that might look like, but it's 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 a willingness to show up to be a to be uh, a, an invited visitor in, into someone else's world yeah. and life, and to be respectful and humble in light of that privilege. Mm. Mm. Um, and um, so yeah, I mean. Just, I mean, maybe just to give uh, a couple of quick examples, um, kind of how this ended up working for me. I, I went to Uganda literally knowing 
nobody except for these missionaries that I had met literally for five minutes in Cambridge in passing in the UK. And they said, oh, we live in Uganda. You should stay with us. And they just gave me their email and then they left. <laughs> so I show up only having their email address. And uh, a couple of days later, I mean, it, it's almost like miraculous. Uh, a couple of days later, I found myself in the midst of more or less 200 of these revivalists that I was study there to study. And there were all of the elders from all across East Africa had mm. gathered and they just happened to be gathering like five days after I, I arrived in Uganda. Mm. And, um, and I, I knew somebody who knew somebody who, who got me in. And so I, I, I show up and I, and I explained my interests and, um, and it turned out, I think the thing that made the difference for me for how that research trip to Uganda went is that first day of that meeting, um, you know, I, I stood out. I was, I was, <laughs> you know, this is a podcast, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a white guy from, from Georgia. Um, and I was with, you know, uh, a lot of um, elder, mostly elderly uh, East African men mm. and, um, and, you know, and they said, okay, it's dinner time. And uh, so I just, they invited me to, to go, uh, you know, I just kind of followed the crowd and, yeah. and I sat there and we were eating and uh, I, I tried to try strike up some conversation. And, and then what came of that is, is a guy said, one of them said, let's, let's, he, he organized my whole, like a research trip for me, mm -hmm. introducing me to all these people who weren't at that meeting. And I asked him why he was willing to do that. And he said, mm -hmm. well, you ate with us. Nobody eats with us. You know, if you're all the for you know, uh, foreigners, when they come, they, they go to the hotel restaurant. Yeah. Um, and you ate with us. And I didn't really think anything of it. It was just like, mm -hmm. I didn't know the town. I, like, I didn't know where the, <laughs> I didn't know where the hotel was. Um, but, um, you know, it was just kind of sitting there and, yeah asking open questions and and listening for however long they wanted to talk and mm. and sharing food and and trying to sort of exist as much as i could on their on their terms yeah. uh, then that opened up all of these other kinds of of possibilities for me mm. uh, in terms of who who was willing to who was willing to talk and share something mm. um so yeah, I mean, those are the those are the kinds of things, right? In in that sense, right? It, it's it's immersive. You have to be willing to be vulnerable and uncomfortable mm. culturally, often physically. It was, uh, you know, it was also meant, you know, sitting in really hot buses for hours at a time in yeah. traffic, you know, for you know every day for weeks on end, meeting with people and trying to travel, and you know, so so it requires those things of you as well. Yeah. Um, but if if you're there ethnographically, all of those things can be a part of the research. There's no kind of clear boundary, I think. Yeah. And I think that's the that's part of the richness of of working in that way. Yeah. Well, thank you for that answer and for sharing your own personal experiences as well. Um, some of that really resonated with me, my own uh, preliminary uh, fieldwork as well. Um, but it's really interesting um, take, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, in the second part of your book, 
um, now you cover some of the important themes that has been important in the field of world Christianity. And one of the themes that I would like to bring to the limelight is chapter eight, uh, titled Conversion. Here you invite readers uh, to think about the issues regarding why people convert to Christianity and the attributing factors that has been you know, examined in one's conversion to Christianity. And the analytical approach you highlight here is the discourse on continuity and discontinuity. So Jason, I was wondering if you can unpack this a little uh, for us on what these two concepts of continuity and discontinuity means. You know, how has it helped scholars, you know, analyze uh, this uh, issue of conversion as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's a complicated one. Uh -huh. um, it, it's it's a set of issues that I think our, our common advisor introduced me to and probably you to as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I remember his his seminar on conversion from several several years ago. Um, and you know I, I think in the in the grand kind of broad scope of of Christian ideas you know, it's it's easy to see these ideas kind of in the New Testament themselves, right? You know, I was in darkness and now I'm in the light, you know, repentance being, you know, turning away and turning towards and, um, you know, there's, you know, these, these kind of stark, um, you know, I, I was dead and now alive, I'm a mm -hmm. new creation, you know, like there's these kind of, uh, this language of, of often stark contrast. Mm. And that's in that sense between your your life before uh, sort of following Christ and your life after uh, being renewed by Christ. So, you know, uh, in that sense. Um, and what that's often produced, um, you know, among Christians themselves is this perception that, you know, there is. A, a lot of difference you know like i was dead and now i'm alive yeah. um i was an old creature now i'm a new creation mm -hmm. you know what is the relationship between between those yeah. um what's the relationship then between this kind of maybe spiritual transformation and the outward manifestations of that that's a, a kind of related analytical question um so i think Scholars of Christianity have inherited this um, kind of framework that, mm. um, but then it kind of exists in this odd space, right? Because yeah. if I, if as scholars started to study conversion as its own kind of phenomenon, mm. um, and this starts as as I'm sure we we've, we've both studied with, with Professor Young, you know, with William James and yeah. and some of some of those uh, thinkers in the late uh, 19th century. You know what what is that? Ex and it's often framed as an experience, as a moment of conversion, as this kind of moment of transformation, mm -hmm. but in which a lot about the person's life doesn't radically change. Like they still sleep, you know, the same. They still have to eat food. You still, have, you know, wear clothes and, you know, like you still have a lot of about your life that is, that is the same. Mm. And so who gets to say what is new and what is old? Yeah. Um, is it, is it the person who's experienced this transformation? Is it the scholar looking at them? 
um, who might have different sensibilities about how much of a change has actually occurred. Mm. Um, that's that's kind of that tension. And mm. so for a lot of um, kind of the, the general, um, again, I'm going to have to speak in very broad terms. Of course, yeah. Mm. But generally speaking, I think a lot of scholars of world Christianity, as the writings say in like from... I'll go back even to the 50s because mm. some of these ideas are present in, in works on on kind of non-Western Christianity that early. Mm. And and to some extent, even the 1940s, the, the idea that like, okay, these people are converting to Christianity because it allows them to continue to speak their own language or yeah. to, um, in the case of those who formed independent churches outside mm. of the missionaries, Right. That was a way to maybe con continue various kinds of cultural practices around mm. healing, around ritual initiation, maybe around polygamy mm. um, that were being outlawed by mission churches and colonial governments. And so the idea was that, OK, they're converting in order to preserve this what you might call cultural continuity. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, they're entering Christianity, a quote unquote different religion, but they're doing that because the language and the style of family life and, and these other kinds of practices can be something that was that they can hold on to because they were being outlawed, maybe mm -hmm. even in other churches. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's kind of goes, it starts to inform like, okay, world Christianity is a field of looking for those kinds of things because those kinds of things show that Christianity is unique, yeah. you know, in South Africa compared to modern Germany or that this is what makes Christianity in this region of Thailand different from, you know, this other region of, of Ghana. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you're looking for these kind of local particularities that are often expressed as okay. These are these are particularities born out of cultural continuity with a kind of uh, sort of local indigenous uh, culture being expressed in a Christian idiom. Mm. Um, so that's that would be okay. Conversion as continuity. Mm. Um, starting uh, yeah again about. You know, in the late 90s, Birgit Meyer published uh, an article that's been cited quite a lot. You know, uh, she's quoting some, uh, a convert saying, you know, make it make a complete break with the past. Yeah. And it's that same biblical language coming out, mm. uh, you know, from the Apostle Paul, especially, mm. you know, I was blind and now I see. Yeah. And, and what she and, and some other really, uh, I, I think, important and creative scholars were pointing out is that like it really does if you if you are only saying people are converting because they're trying to hold on to something old mm -hmm. you might be you, you could be missing and you likely are missing some real important theological cultural dynamics at play and why someone wouldn't want to hold on to that, mm. that, that cultural stuff. So, so they take on a Christian convert yeah. narrative and identity because it allows them to become new people in the context, especially of, of kind of post-colonial Africa or post-colonial Asia, mm. other places. 
And it's a way for them to distance themselves from these other things, national projects, or maybe kind of quote unquote traditional um, spiritualism kind of um, projects um, and say like, I'm, I'm going to be my own, you know, often in modern inflected person hmm. who's left those things behind and Christ is my new identity. And it's not just a kind of rhetorical uh, mm -hmm. thing, but it, it obviously starts to affect how they spend their money, how they build their houses, yeah. um, who their friends are, are with, you know, and, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And so that literature, which I would say is discontinuity, it's, it's simply saying that like when converts say, I don't want any part of that, yeah. you should pay attention to it because it's obviously shaping at the very least how they perceive themselves. Yeah. And almost certainly it affects how they are living their lives. And if you don't kind of think about it from their perspective, mm. um, then then you might just kind of be sort of papering over some differences that are actually quite important. Yeah. Um, um, so, so that's kind of what's been at stake, I think, in, in that kind of, th those scholarly back and forth, um, mm -hmm. you know, which were kind of from like, I don't know, maybe 1998 to 2010 or something like there's a series of articles that were kind of going back and forth on that. Yeah. Um, in that same chapter, I end with a, a, a slightly different uh, spin on this, yeah. and it's it's my my good my friend uh, Devika Primawardena's mm -hmm. book, which I I think is just such a creative, uh, insightful, mm -hmm. uh, fascinating analysis, and because he takes up this the uh, he, he's an ethnographer by training and he he's in uh, Mozambique. Yeah. And he's working among people who take up the Pentecostal idea of I'm a new creation. The, the past is the past. I'm moving into a new future. They, they find that really interesting, like, mm. like really engaging. And a lot of them go into Pentecostal churches uh, as a result. But then they leave those churches. Like, and, so, and so then he's like, well, how do you account for why they – became Pentecostal and how do you account for then how they pretty quickly left Pentecostalism? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so he plays with this idea of like converting to Christianity isn't necessarily converting to the Christian idea of mm -hmm. conversion. Yeah. And so it's sort of this. So what he does is he places those decisions in this kind of longer cultural history of that particular people mm where they they resist being confined yeah. in any way like there are kind of semi-nomadic um uh, people that were very much on the peripheries of colonial rule and so that it's that say it's kind of playing with the like okay they became they sort of made a break with the past but then they kept on making breaks with the past and then pentecostalism became a part of the past that they made a break with as well yeah, yeah. and um and I, and I end with that kind of thing just to show that, like, as scholars of Christianity, we often think the story should end with, okay, and now they're Christian and they're Christian in this way. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, and the story ha can have lots of other endings, and, and these stories often do. Mm -hmm. And so to be attentive to 
to where do we stop the story of what conversion is for somebody or for some group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think he does um, uh, a lovely job of, of, of having this kind of patience as well as I think analytical integrity to follow that story out and not let it end with it only explaining this is how they all become Pentecostal, mm-hmm. you know, in the nineties or early two thousands without following it through that, like, well, a lot of these Pentecostal churches are now empty. Mm-hmm. What do we make of it? Yeah. So um, to me, that's, that's kind of how uh, I, I, I'm, I present those issues in the book. Well, thank you, Jason. I know it was uh, this, we can take a whole podcast of talking about conversion itself, but thank you. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you for, in a way, summarizing this and uh, bullet pointing the important aspects about uh, the concepts that we mentioned, continuity, discontinuity. And again, um, yeah, the the book, I think uh, Dr. Primawardana's book is Faith in Flux, if I remember it correctly. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, that book really presents very interesting take on uh, these issues of conversion and and a break and and so forth. Um, now, continuing on um, into your book, uh, into the chapter titled Gender and Sexuality. Um, you not only talk about missionaries and you know men in the study of world Christianity, but you also accentuate the positionality of women. You know, for example, how imperative they were in the modern missionary movement. Um, I was wondering, Jason, if you could provide some more insight um, regarding this chapter, especially in, insight to the role of women and their importance in world Christianity scholarship and. You know, who is, I know you mentioned um, Dr. Robert, but um, if you would like to continue to um, talk about her work as well, but if you have other scholars um, who talk about the importance of women and especially within World Christianity Scholarship and the groundbreaking work on, on their um, on their groundbreaking work, please feel free to, to do so to talk about them as well. Yeah, I mean, as you... As you mentioned, I am. Uh, I, I feel like I'll always be Dana Roberts' student. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, and she's. I, I think more than anyone else is is responsible for for insisting uh, on the centrality and the historical importance of not only women as missionaries, but women as converts, women as church leaders, as mm-hmm. caretakers, as um, as the essential, uh, in many cases, kind of the essential um, fiber that that holds uh, these these church communities um, um, together, mm. and um, so um, I mean I think when I'm in, in writing about sort of those issues, I, I'm kind of thinking about it in a couple of ways. One is like. Dana Robert, especially her scholarship um, in, in a number of, I mean, really, I mean, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that like a lot of the other scholars who have contributed in this field are, are either literally her students or, mm-hmm. or kind of figuratively her yeah. students. Um, um, and uh, not to take away from anyone else's um, kind of contributions, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I, I I think rightly so that 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 she is the the path 
breaker, not just to kind of putting this essential fact back into the historical register that like you've got you've got 150 years essentially of like people writing histories of of the christian missionary movement and almost none of them Mm. mentioning women except overwhelmingly in passing yeah or as these kind of like you know oh yes and he was married too or Mm. you know whatever else um to to come from that to the realization that you know by the end of the 19th century it's clear that even even as missionaries, uh, women are are the majority of of people who are working in mission fields. Coming from the perspective of of U.S. sending eight missionary agencies, or um, in, in other cases, some of the the European ones. And um, and then it's not simply about these these kind of stereotypical heroes like David David Livingston or um, whoever else. Um, I, I think there's this odd kind of, there's a different kind of imbalance though. Mm-hmm. Like on the one hand, the men's efforts yeah. have been very, very well documented by themselves. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, I mean, they had to do reports of like, here's all the great things we did. Um, but in terms of like reflecting on it as through the lens of a gendered analysis, mm-hmm. you know, that comes uh, in you know, what does it mean for them to be men in these particular roles? Yeah. How, how are they socialized to become these particular kinds of, of people? Um, how do they perform masculinity as missionaries in colonial spaces or, or other kind of frontier spaces? That's not really been done all that much. I mean, there are a few studies of kind of like masculinity. Yeah um uh in missions there there are more studies of masculinity outside of missions of course Mm. but like there there has been gendered analysis i think of of women um not just kind of as historical figures but but kind of using the tools that come out of the 80s and 90s to turn towards gender as an analytical category um that just haven't really been done for men, even though their efforts have been documented so much more thoroughly. So I think that's a, that's a kind of analytical gap um, that could be, that could be interesting to be explored. Um, But I think what's come of, of that, uh, you know, in, in of things like uh, Dana Roberts uh, article, you know, world Christianity as a women's movement. Yeah. Um, that then in, is, is, was designed to encourage a, a whole kind of trajectory of scholarship, not just on women missionaries, but women as converts and church leaders and deaconesses and translators, yeah. um, that, that those things have, I, I think they have kind of come to fruition. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely enhanced, um, deepened, expanded um our understanding of what christianity is i mean on the other hand like just to give them credit i mean you've got um groups like odioye's you know uh concerned women uh uh, i'm sorry i'm gonna (laughs) the order a group of concerned women african theologians i'm I'm sorry if i'm Mm. uh switching the words up but but you have these other you have those kinds of collectives 
that are that are doing that kind of research, not just research, but kind of community building, mm-hmm. um, spiritual nourishment, um, and so on in, in these regional contexts that are mm-hmm. that are also so much a part of of what it means to think about Christianity with respect to gender and mm-hmm. and finding ways to fully incorporate women in the study of world Christianity yeah. and as well as kind of as um, quote unquote historical subjects or, or objects of study. Nice. Um, um, yeah, I, I could, I could, I could say more, but um, maybe yeah. that's, uh, that's, that's probably enough for now. Yeah. Well, thank you for that thorough answer. And um, yeah, it's um, a lot of, I think m- more attention is needed, I think uh, within world Christianity regards to, the the role and the importance of uh, women and um, how you know the women uh, the women have really uh, contributed in, in 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 Christianity in various contexts as well and thank you for highlighting that in this chapter um, one important aspect that I really appreciated and found refreshing um, about your book was how intentional uh, you were in you know naming some of the neglected topics in the study of world Christianity. Um, In chapter 13, you address some of the neglected topics such as violence, uh, persecution, and religious freedom. In a way, I felt like you were nudging future readers and scholars uh, to continue to ask questions, you know, such as what is missing uh, in our discourse? You know, why aren't we talking about these important issues? And one of the topics you also mentioned, but now has been gaining quite a lot of bit, uh, quite a lot of momentum in various, you know, world Christianity conferences, are issues surrounding ecology and uh, climate crisis. Yeah, and I think that addressing these neglected topics really help us to th- also think about the future of our field as well. So. As the author of this uh, book, How to Study Global Christianity, and you know from the various uh, topics you mentioned, I wanted to ask if there was any one or two specific topics that you know kind of stood out to you that you wish you want to highlight here today in our conversation, or maybe even if you wanted to draw our attention to a topic that you did not have the opportunity to include uh, in this chapter. If that, if that's what you would like to do, please feel free to do so as well. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I, you know, as I was ha- having some of these conversations with with colleagues and friends um, over the last, I don't know, quite a few years um, since leaving Princeton, I, and especially just kind of maybe to return to the autobiographical for just a second, mm-hmm. kind of in then engaging with new colleagues mm-hmm. uh, here at ASU and and elsewhere um, that put me kind of in touch with other kinds of things that were being done in the field, it, it sort of raised this question, like, why aren't we, why haven't we addressed this? Like, yeah. it seems like it would be related to the study of Christianity, but yet there's not much or anything on X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. topic. Um, and And it was a way of kind of wanting to name at least for the sake of clarity, what are the, what are kind of practically speaking the boundaries of what we do? Mm. Um, and, and, and I'm not like unique to doing this. Um, you know, I, I, I do think the, 
the book that came out uh, a couple, maybe four years ago, five years ago, um, relocating world Christianity, you know, is, is a similar kind of attempt of, of kind of being intentional about, okay, like, yes, we pat ourselves on the back for including these things. What have we kind of by necessity or, or just ignorance or, or other priorities not, not included and and why? Um, And, um, and, and that was kind of the, what I was, trying to introduce was this in this this just trying to make it explicit that and it became really apparent to me when i was working on not to plug my own book but like when i was working on the the book on persecution yeah that because it, it was just so so blatant to me when i was reading this literature on on especially then anti christian persecution and, and these people, I mean, these that sounds pejorative, but like these other scholars and writers and journalists and who were, you know, making these claims like, you know, it's the worst time on earth to be a Christian, you know. And I thought nobody in world Christianity has ever said a statement like that. Like, this is a great time to be a Christian. If you're, you know, if you go to the Yale Edinburgh conference, yeah. uh, you know, Christianity's ex- exploding, you know, in a great way. Like it's vibrant and uh, you know, all of these people are sending missions all over the place and you've got all of these new churches going all over the place. Mm. Um, and it was that kind of disconnect, like, wow, there's like a whole literature, like a whole industry mm. um, around this idea that like Christians are the most persecuted group on the planet and um, that the vast majority of Christians are, are suffering like mm. in, a, in an extreme way. Uh, I mean, and and then to feel like, no, I don't necessarily agree with those statements, but like it was it was just the exact inverse of what I'd been trained to think about kind of Christianity's current state. Mm. And and that was one of the pieces that got me kind of pulling on seeing what other threads I could pull yeah. that felt like there are these similar kinds of 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 topics that that were like where we just weren't engaging the Mm. we being kind of people who do world christianity broadly yeah um and because i i do think right we've been trained when it comes to something like violence or persecution Mm. the inclination of of a lot of that training if you read somebody like andrew walls you know, is that you're looking for agency, you're looking for creativity, you're looking for novelty. You're not necessarily looking for power imbalances. You're mm-hmm. not necessarily looking for um, suffering. You're not necessarily looking for uh, constraints, mm-hmm. political constraints, cultural constraints. You're looking for like kind of how people figure out their way outside of those things. And that's like kind of like what then a local Christianity is kind of comes to represent within the field. Mm-hmm. And so I do think there's something to that we need to return to, which is like, no, those constraints actually are contextually very important. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Even if we would rather they not be there, even if you can still say, yes, these Christians are, are of course doing something creative and interesting mm-hmm. and new. Um, 
But yeah, it's also the case that maybe a number of people from that same region are being imprisoned under specious circumstances. And how is that not a part of what Christianity is there? Mm -hmm. So, So those are the kinds of things where I think I wanted to at least provide some sense of this could be a, this is kind of what's at stake yeah. for topics like that, mm-hmm. um, and that we don't necessarily have uh, a narrative a, as a field that would be really inclined to incorporate that. But nevertheless, it's really relevant for a lot of Christians today as well as historically. I think it's it, in its historical sense, it's not just kind of accounting for historical wrongs like the Armenian genocide or mm. the Holocaust, but it's it's accounting for, you know, like what would it mean for scholars of world Christianity to take the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation report seriously about mission schools and their their horrific, rampant cultural and physical violence against yeah you know, First Nations people and other, you know, indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Like, and and are we saying that those are categorically different than the kinds of schools Mm -hmm. in Australia, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa? Like, those same institutions were a part, at least in the Catholic context, of Mm -hmm. like international rings of covering up sexual abuse and other kinds of physical abuse, Mm -hmm. emotional abuse, spiritual abuse. Like, these things are a part of what Christianity is in these contexts. Like, I think we need to be honest about those histories of violence, even as we ask our colleagues in area studies or church history to be honest about the fact that Christianity isn't just a Western story. Mm -hmm. So for me, those are the kinds of things that are at stake with respect to, like, uh, kind of violence, persecution, religious freedom. Um, I I think with some of the other topics that I, uh, that I raised, um, I mean, I'll I'll go with something like ecology and, and, um, uh, and and then maybe I'll say one more thing about kind of, uh, uh, groups of Christians that might be excluded. Um, I, I think you're right. And I, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right that there is more now. But if you go back maybe ten, even just ten years, mm-hmm. there's there's not much. You know, like if you look at kind of the the journals and the book series that are a part, you know, that's not the priority. Yeah. And that's fine. Like, I, it's fine to have other priorities. Um, but um, you know, in thinking about our responsibilities to one another our responsibilities as scholars in thinking, okay, what does it mean to be Christian in this place at this moment, whether that moment you're looking at is now or a hundred years ago, Mm. we've often excluded categories like geography or environment or nature um, from those contextual expressions Mm. of Christianity. And I think if you're looking at, at communities now, like in the Pacific Islands, you you clearly have churches that are like, our homes are being drowned. Yeah. Um, and this is not separable from our faith or from our lives. This is not an abstract issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a, I mean, that's an, that's an immediate kind of dramatic example. 
But I think in other kinds of contexts, whether it's it's drought in the Southwest. Mm. I mean, we're now in the midst of the worst drought in over a thousand years. Yeah. Um, like, how is this not a part in some way of, of thinking about this particular context that I'm in? Yeah. Um, it, it'll obviously be different if you're looking at Thailand or Northern India or wherever else, but at least being attentive to mm-hmm. the fact that what makes what conditions a contextual expression of Christianity isn't just kind of culture. And there, and if, if you're just kind of reifying this nature culture divide, Mm -hmm. then often that can even be a profound abstraction from how those Christians themselves are, are relating to their surroundings. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think being more intentional about making those connections, I I think is absolutely uh, essential and should be a part of scholarship going forward. Um, I mean, I, I can also, re- I, I think a similar kind of correction has has gladly happened with respect to like Eastern Christians. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more scholarship on this. I mean, uh, thanks to some of my friends like Deanna Womack and, mm-hmm. and many others, uh, Candice Lukasik and yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's lots of names um, who are doing really great ethnographic, historical, theological research um, that that is kind of in conversation and contributing to um, uh, the field of world or global Christianity, anthropology of Christianity. And and yeah, that's another thing that I think is a wonderful transformation over the past decade. Because when I was kind of getting my bearings on the field, that was, there were a few things Mm. But it was it was absolutely kind of marginal, mm. um, and I I still think there's a lot of scholarship on say Orthodox Christians in general mm. that is being done, but it's not necessarily being done in relation to kind of the broader field of like world Christianity, mm. and so I think um, I'm I'm glad that those those connections are are being made, yeah. um, because. Um, I feel like it was a rather arbitrary exclusion um, yeah. uh, in an unfortunate one. Um, mm-hmm. there, there, there are others, but I, I think I've, I've gone on long enough uh, mm-hmm. on, the, on the question. Well, thank you, uh, Jason, for highlighting those uh, important topics. Um, now, as we head towards the end of our interview, there are two questions that I would like to ask you, and that is, you know, how do you envision um, your book, uh, this very book, How to Study Global Christianity Being Used? Um, do you have any like tips you would like to give to our readers, you know, students and also our professors on how to best, you know, utilize this book to its, you know, full potential? Um, well, thank you. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a generous question. I um, Yeah, I mean, like I've said, the the heart of it was to do to to make a contribution kind of looking backwards to to help others along mm. i i wanted to do that in kind of two ways one in being generous in how i describe the different themes as well as the different methods like i i didn't want to be like you know if you really want to do world christianity stuff you know you got to be a historian or whatever right. you know like <laughs> Uh, to me, you know, I didn't want to, um, you know, put my hand on the scales. Um, uh, 
if I'm introducing people to the field. Hmm. Um, uh, but in that, but it, but rather to to kind of, kind of, almost like a tour guide, kind of show them, uh, yeah. you know, kind of all of the different potential passageways, hmm. um, and uh, and and try to do that is is kind of um, straightforwardly, fairly. And, and generously as I as I can. So mm-hmm. if you're looking for something that's got a polemical edge to it, this is not this is not <laughs> the, the book um, because I do I do try to um, kind of give give various positions the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. and um, and and show why reasonable scholars um, might might take one direction or the other. Yeah. Um, I do have you know study or or kind of more classroom friendly pieces of it, or at least student friendly pieces, like the the suggestions for further reading. Yes. Which uh-huh. I, again, I try to have different kinds of scholars represented in those reading lists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that could be geographically by Christian tradition, by methods, um, you know, so that it's not just kind of one one type of scholarship. Mm-hmm. that I'm just kind of trying to reiterate, but to, to use that to kind of introduce people to other things that they might not have found. And and questions or activities are, are obviously, you know, I've tried many of those mm-hmm. uh, either as discussions or as assignments in my own classes um, on classes that have to do with Christianity and classes that don't necessarily have to do with Christianity exclusively. Um, obviously, other professors, uh, teachers, and so on have. Can, uh, I mean, I'm amazed at, at, at like some of my colleagues who do like, who are like in education, you know, like in the school of education, like what they can like whip up in like 30 <laughs> seconds. It's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's why you're the expert in, <laughs> in pedagogical <laughs> methods. So. Um, I hope it's just, you know, kind of things to get people's uh, gears turning about what might, what might work. Yeah. I would say the, another feature of it is like, I'm writing from a, at a state school, yeah. um, you know, that has certain boundaries around theology and, and confessional particularity. Mm. I, I tried to write it in a way that it would be it's 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 useful in this kind of context and it would be useful if you're at a seminary mm-hmm. or a faith-based college um I, I i really tried to keep kind of that um scope in view as well um you know on the other hand people might be disappointed that it isn't maybe more um confessional in some in some way but that's that's part of the reason why um i mean i I think it probably works best as a as a companion text um, yeah. because it is about introducing students to a kind of a way of studying Christianity or a field of study. Mm. And, uh, and unless you're doing something that's just like theory and methods of studying Christianity, which, you know, maybe there's that class out there yeah. uh, at a couple of institutions, you know, probably for most people, this would. Uh, it would be assigning a chapters, maybe mm-hmm. in an introduction to Christianity class, maybe mm-hmm. in a world Christianity class or seminar, where it kind of complements 
you know, maybe some of the scholarship that I'm interacting with, and then uh, and then that's a kind of uh, a way to frame yeah. some more advanced articles. Um, I also tried to design the chapters as much as possible to be independent. So yeah. it's not like you have to read, you, you can assign them in, in almost any order. Right. Um, and I think they, I, I think they should hold up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you can assign one or two and without kind of losing, uh, and I think in, in they would still be valuable. So I, I did try to make it a, a very flexible mm. um, resource in, in that sense as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and of course, uh, if, you, if you're a graduate student and you want to, you know, in, in, I don't know what the final word count was, maybe 50,000 words or something, have something like a, a, re, um, a reasonable way into almost any any piece of scholarship, mm. uh, which that's kind of the other audience that I had in mind. I, mm. I would hope that this this book would do that. You would you would be able to have something to attach, yeah. kind of any other article to, uh, to at least have uh, an initial kind of uh, I don't know to use a, a, a an initial like GPS location point um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that you can kind of uh, orient for, uh, on your own from. Mm. So yeah, th those are those are some thoughts about it as a as a resource. Well, thank you, Jason, for those tips and for for sharing your thoughts. And it's wonderful that we can actually hear this from the author himself. And also, I would like to thank you for inviting the readers for in a way uh, uh, having a allowing us to have a deeper reflection on what world Christianity is through your book. And I was very grateful um, for our discussion today. But to wrap up this interview today there is one final uh question i would like to ask you and that is do you mind sharing with us about your current projects and what you hope to work on in the future as well yeah this i don't I, i'm sorry i'm laughing because i feel like um uh it's gonna sound like this old uh kind of tv show or whatever you know now for something completely different um <laughs> uh but I, I am kind of pivoting a little bit and it, it's in part through the the role that I've taken on that you you mentioned in your your kind introduction on mm -hmm. desert humanities, mm -hmm. um, but to some extent some of this some of my work and interest in kind of doing local research in the in the Southwest in Arizona has been going on for several years, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so those are the kinds of things that I'm I'm giving my myself and my time to are. are uh, developing uh, local community partnerships mm -hmm. around teaching and, and research, mm -hmm. um, developing some uh, kind of larger collaborative projects, some faculty members and graduate students here that are people who are doing different kinds of creative and locally based research in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think that's, that's not just an expression of my own kind of um, interests, but I think I'm also kind of at a stage in my career where I don't I don't need to. Uh, I've done quite I've done a few books in the last couple of years, <laughs> and I don't need to I don't feel the need to keep up that pace for right. a few reasons. One is that I'm <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work, uh, but two is like I, I want to use that kind of uh, kind of where I'm at as a result of that mm. to think about. Um, doing things that, that 
contribute to to others and and help foster a, a broader sense of of scholarship and engagement. Yeah. Um, so some of that will obviously ha be for me in relation to the local religious communities. Mm. Um, but but those are the kinds of uh, that that's the kind of general direction that I'm that I'm going. Well, Jason, that sounds like a very interesting project, and you know I look forward to. Um you know, reading more of uh, what comes out from those projects. And once again, thank you so much uh, today for being on our podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was, uh, it was really a pleasure. And thank you everyone uh, so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored um, the book, How to Study Global Christianity, A Short Guide for Students, written by Jason Bruner and published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi, and please stay tuned for the next episode on new books on world Christianity.